You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, we're turning uh, again this evening to the 13th chapter of John's Gospel. Um, I now have two church Bibles on the pulpit here, and I think David must have known that uh, since I brought back about 150 large boxes of books, it might be difficult to find my two copies of the New International Version. And I have been looking for them this week, but without success. Um, but um, it's, uh, it's a joy uh, to be David Robertson's assistant, and I certainly mean to be known uh, by that in church history, uh, that it will be it will be on the stone. He was David Robertson's assistant. Um, we had a churchyard round our church in uh, South Carolina where one of my favorite tombstones was a Confederate soldier, um, a rebel, I guess, in the 18th century. And on the back of his tombstone, it said that at a particular tree in Charleston, he pledged to resist British taxation. And I always thought I would get a copy of that and, uh, and bring it home. But to more significant things, John's Gospel chapter 13, and uh, we're going to begin reading from verse 12. When Jesus had finished washing his disciples' feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than his master, the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture, he who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Like uh, a few of you this evening, I was brought up uh, in days when children's toys we're very far removed from what one might call high-tech. And I think the most high-tech toy uh, I ever had, apart from a strange wizard that would go round a magic circle and point to the answer uh, to various strange and unusual questions, the most high-tech toy I ever had was a little thing that when you turned it one way, you saw one picture, and then if you just turned it another way, lo and behold, you would see another picture. Seems primitive today, the kind of thing that Noah might have made for his children. 
But this passage that we've just read, when read alongside the opening verses of John chapter 13, very much reminds me of these old toys. The first part of the chapter is a passage in which Jesus invites us to look at himself and learn one particular lesson. And then now in these verses we've read, it's almost as though he turns what has happened to a slightly different angle and wants to teach the disciples an additional lesson. And interestingly, both of these passages are joined together by the same verb. It's the verb understand. In the first section where Jesus has washed his disciples' feet and uh, Peter resists when he comes to him, Jesus says to him, you remember, you do not now understand what I am doing, but afterwards you will understand. What he is doing here is an acted parable of the incarnation, and they're not going to be able to understand the inner meaning of that acted parable until Jesus has fulfilled his passion and has emerged in his resurrection and then pours out his Spirit upon them. And he makes that very clear, and it is clear, isn't it? Peter really cannot see into the meaning of Jesus washing his feet. He looks into the basin, as it were, and all he sees is Jesus washing his feet. And so Jesus says, Peter, you're not now able to understand this, but afterwards you will. But then you notice as the passage goes on, Jesus then says to them, once he's resumed his place at the head of the table, he says to them in verse 12, do you understand what I have done to you? And it's fairly clear now he's He's challenging them in the anticipation that while they cannot fully grasp the significance of what he has just done, there is something about it that they ought even now to be able to understand. They can't yet grasp that he's given them a picture of what it means to be their Savior but they ought to be able to grasp that he has also given them a model and an illustration of what it means for him to be their master and them to be his servants, for him to be their teacher and them to learn the lessons of being his disciple. And he urges them, therefore, to understand. And I want to walk through this passage this evening along the lines of thinking, what does this mean for a disciple of Jesus Christ to come to understand what Jesus is doing here? There are four steps, really. The first is that they need to be brought to an understanding of the significance of what Jesus has done. I'm interested in the fact that Jesus does not say to them what I think I would tend to say to them. I think I would tend to say to them, 
Don't you feel embarrassed by what I have just done? Don't you feel ashamed of what you have failed to do? Because each of them in the room is conscious. They, rather than the Lord Jesus, should have been the one going round washing the disciples' feet if a servant was absent, as was the case. They should have served Jesus, not Jesus serve them. And uh, I think it would be perfectly reasonable for Jesus to say, don't you feel embarrassed about what you have failed to do? When actually what he says is, don't you understand? Can't you grasp what it is that I have done? You see, he's testing them. Just as uh, those of us who were here in the opening verses saw that there's more than one significance to Jesus saying to Peter, what I'm doing now you don't understand, but afterwards you will understand. That was true of Christ's death for him, but it was also true of Christ's providences in his life. And here, in a similar way, Jesus is testing them, and he he does that kind of thing. He wants to find out where their faith is, where their understanding is. Do you understand this? Then speak to me about it. Remember how earlier on in John's Gospel in chapter 6, he had had this huge crowd round about him. He looked out, and uh, he turned, and he said to his disciples, I think we need to get some food for these guys. And uh, one of the disciples says, you know, two-thirds of our year's wages wouldn't buy food for these people, even if there were a supermarket nearby. And John tells us, how did he know this, incidentally? He tells us, Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. He said this only to test them. It's actually a great pastoral technique. I'm sure David Robertson has sometimes used it with you. Perhaps you didn't notice. He was testing you, finding out about you. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And the important thing is, he's finding out not what they feel about the situation. That's important, but it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that they understand what it is that Jesus has done. I think it's very significant that he's focusing attention on their understanding. That's how the gospel works. Uh, Did you notice in prayer this morning, reference was made to Paul's words in Romans chapter 12, appeal to us to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And in that context, you recall, Paul speaks about the way in which lives are transformed by the renewing of the mind. That is to say, when our minds are re-centered, recalibrated, refocused in Jesus Christ, then there flows from that the willingness to serve Him, and there is given fuel to our affections to love Him. 
And so Jesus is beginning with the disciples where disciples need to be begun with. Do you understand what I have done to you? And what he does expect them to be able to understand is that at one level, this is an illustration, a model that they should imitate. I think this made a profound impression, incidentally, on Simon Peter, because later on in his first letter, he speaks about the Lord Jesus giving us a model to follow. And the word he uses is very, very illuminating, really. It reminds me again of my childhood days when we were given these jotters at school. And there was a space in the jotter where the teacher would sit down beside you, and she, it usually was a she in primary school, she would write out some of the letters of the alphabet in the book. And then underneath or on top, you were to carefully copy the letters that she had made. And Peter apparently came to understand that this was what Jesus was teaching his disciples. I've grasped what Jesus is doing here. I understand what Jesus is doing here when in my life I write over the model writing of humble service that Jesus has illustrated here the humble service that I show to others in the course of my Christian life. So, Jesus is seeking an understanding of the significance of what he has done. But he has more to say, not only an understanding of the significance of what he has done, but an understanding of the significance of who it is who has done it, of who it is who has done it. And he, he, he presses home this point, doesn't he? Verses 13 and 14. He says, You call me teacher and Lord. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. What creates the impetus in our hearts? What creates the motivation in our hearts to minister and serve others in this way is not just that Jesus did it, but who Jesus is who has done it. He knows they, they can't fully grasp that He has, as it were, come from heaven to earth in order to bear the burden of their sin. They have a, they have a, a faint glimmer of that but they have been brought to the place where they call Him Lord and Master, their leader and their teacher. And He is saying to them, not just by way of illustration, but by motivation, if the one who forever has dwelt in the glories of heaven should come down and wash your dirty feet, if I should stretch so far kneel so low, if the, if the Prince of Glory should do that, then our instinct is to say, 
My, if he has done it, it is a little thing for me to do it. Or to say, if he has done it, how can I possibly refuse to do it? And so our understanding of the significance of what he has done needs to be filled out with an understanding of the significance of who it is that has done it. And you see this in ordinary life, don't you? Somebody does something and you, you take it for granted. But then somebody whom you highly esteem does it. And you are in awe. Joe Blogg speaks to you. And you think, so what? But then someone whom you never dreamt would have spoken to you, speaks to you. And it's an impetus, it's an impetus in your heart to say, then I too should be like that to others. So there's an understanding of the significance of what Jesus has done, and there's an understanding of the significance of who Jesus is. But then there's a third kind of understanding here, and it emerges in verse 16. Look at what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, for those of us who are older, that's the old authorized version, amen, amen, I say to you, which is actually a more literal expression of what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, A servant is not greater than his master. Now, everything the Lord Jesus says is true. Everything he says is true. But Jesus himself underscores for us that in all these true things, there are some things that are particularly significant for us, that we have got to pay attention to. Uh, He wasn't able to use bold letters or underline it. And if you've a red-letter Bible, he wasn't able to use red letters in his Bible to underline it. So this is the way of Jesus emphasizing to us, everything I'm saying here is important, but don't miss this point. Now, what is the point? A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. What's understanding involved here? Understanding of who Jesus is, of what Jesus has done. But then there's a third area of understanding, understanding who we are. The way I think about myself intuitively determines the way I treat others and the way I live my life. Of course, it comes out in all kinds of strange ways. I said to my wife recently about some encounter with a person she had. Actually, I think she's got an inferiority complex, I said. But the the character that was expressed was actually a character of superiority. Of course, if you feel profoundly inferior, then you're going to respond to that in one of two ways. Either you're going to withdraw into yourself, 
or you're going to deal with other people by presenting yourself as superior to them. And every day of our lives, we give away to others, to discerning, sensitive people. We give away who we really think we are. And uh, this is why Jesus is reminding his disciples who they really are. You know, in the Christian life, how I think about myself in relationship to the Lord is the driver of how I'm going to live the Christian life. And uh, among the many things that are part of that relationship with the Lord, Jesus underscores too. I am your Lord, and you are my servant. I am your teacher, and you are my disciple. I am the master, and you are the bond slave. That's not the only thing the gospel tells us about our relationship to the Lord Jesus, but it's a hugely important thing, isn't it? He has bought us with the price of His own blood. He has redeemed us in the slave market of our sin, and He has set us free but He has set us free in order that we might become His glad bond slaves. And a bond slave exists exclusively to do the will of his or her master. And happily as Christian believers, we are in the position of those bond slaves in the days of the Old Testament Scriptures who would come to their master and say, I love my master. I never want to be free from you. And you remember how the master would take them to the door and uh, hammer a little nail through the ear. It's the only body piercing in the Old Testament that seems actually to be favored. And it was a sign, the pierced ear, that you were listening for your master. You were sensitive to your master. And Jesus is saying, as is true of the master, so let it be true of the servant. Jesus is described in the Scriptures as the servant of the Lord. How Paul loves to speak about himself as he writes his letters as a bond slave of Jesus Christ. The joy of freedom in Christ is the liberty to do everything for His glory. And then He is also our teacher. And if a slave, a bond servant, exists to do his or her master's will, then of course it's true that uh, a disciple, or in this case a messenger, lives to deliver the message to live the life that he or she has seen in the Master. And he's really saying now, as you, as you go out into the world, people are going to be, they're going to tell whose messenger you are, not only by the words you speak, but by the way you live. 
And all of this, of course, is emerging out of this profoundly countercultural thing that Jesus is saying. In antiquity, only slaves, the least and the lowest of slaves, washed feet. And Jesus is saying to these men who will be known now for 2,000 years as the great apostles, the ones to whom he is giving these extraordinarily significant and privileged positions. He's saying, I want you to go out into the world and to demonstrate the heavenliness of the life you live by doing these radically countercultural things, like washing the dirty feet of others, by caring for the least and the lowest. Actually, it's a very interesting thing, isn't it, that that's actually what people notice. Um, we may be good at speaking the gospel, and that's very important, but people taste us. Remember as a, as a youngster reading in newspaper that uh, Japanese people believed British people smelled of milk. No, I didn't think that. I suppose that's because we all drank so much milk, we had immunized ourselves against smelling each other. But if you're in a culture where nobody drinks milk products, I guess you would be very sensitive to that. And some of you will have noticed now, it used to be 20 years ago, you would hold your breath as you went into a building into the depths of the building because you were going through the area dominated by the smokers, and now it's when you come out of the building you hold your breath. Or if you're in an elevator, 20 years ago nobody noticed that somebody else had been smoking. But today someone comes into an elevator and just breathes out twice, and everybody in the elevator knows what the fellow who's come into the elevator doesn't realize he's telling everybody in the elevator. He's just been out for a quick puff. Now think about it this way. Here you are in whatever situation you are. What is it that is actually going to give off the aroma of Christ? that we were reading about also this morning. Well, it's this, because most of us don't live in a world where this is the culture. And actually, it's, it's not hugely difficult. You know, you don't need a massive intellect or uh, to have a big Bible concordance to understand this or to effect this. What you need is this sensitivity to the Lord Jesus that causes you to say, Lord Jesus, you have washed my feet in your gracious salvation, and my desire is just show me how I can wash feet here. People will be absolutely astonished. It's not rocket science, but it does mean sharing the lowliness and the love of the Lord Jesus as his disciple and as his messenger. And that leads us to the fourth thing. We have to understand the significance of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. 
and understand the significance of who we are as his servants and his messengers in order, and this comes in right at the end, doesn't it, in order to understand the significance of the blessing he promises we will receive. These are so interesting, these words, when he says, he he refers to Judas Iscariot. Do you notice that? He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And then there's this little discussion of Judas Iscariot and how he's lifting up his heel in order to crush and destroy Jesus. And then he ends by saying, now, whoever receives you as you live this life of grace is going to be drawn to me. And whoever is drawn to me is going to be drawn to the heavenly Father who sent me. And he's saying, this is the life of blessing. Now, this again ties in with the morning message, the blessings and the cursings, doesn't it? And I suppose the only place most of us ever hear the word bless in the present day is on those occasions when you sneeze and somebody may say, bless you. Not knowing that that language actually comes from the days of the plague. The symbol of the curse of God on a city. And sneezing was one of the symptoms of the plague. And so if you sneezed and sneezed, then bless you was a calling down from heaven that your life might be spared from this terrible curse and you might be brought into and preserved in the wholeness and joy and life that God intended you to enjoy. And that's what he's saying here. This blessing is the fulfillment of what he'd said earlier on in chapter 10 when he said, I've come that you might have life and have it in all its fullness. And here's the great paradox that the world can never understand, which is why it always asks the question about the countercultural Christian life. What is it that makes her tick that she's, she's living this different way from the rest of us? And Jesus says this is, this is the way of normality for those who are Christ's. This is the way of entering into the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Simple, counter-cultural lifestyle, washing dirty feet, points people to the Lord Jesus. Now, if you're anything like me, there's a kind of lingering question here. And it's actually related to the fact that Jesus speaks about Judas. There must surely be a limit to this for the simple reason that there are some people whose dirty feet are not fit to be washed. So I don't need to wash those feet, do I? Well, I can hardly say that having read this passage, can I? Because what this passage makes clear I read this again and again and again, and I say, surely this cannot actually be true. Somehow or another, I'm not getting the chronology right here. Jesus washed Judas's feet, knowing everything 
about Judas. It involves washing the dirty feet of those who currently are destined to be Christ destroyers. It is all embracing. You know a Judas somewhere? Judas in your office. person who spits on your Christian faith. The person you would almost, you would almost think you would vomit if you stooped down and washed their dirty feet. And here Jesus is saying to us, but that's the way. That's the way. It's interesting, he knew that Judas Iscariot was going to deny him and would seek to destroy him. But isn't it so interesting how he stooped down once again in a few years' time from heaven actually to arrest the man who was destroying his people and washed his dirty feet, brought him into the kingdom and made him so fruitful. I sometimes reflect on what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he has this great strong statement, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a great statement. But then he adds something else, doesn't he? And ourselves, your bond slaves, for Jesus' sake. And so as Christ has washed our feet in every sense and made us clean and we go into a, a dirty world, we're encouraged by his example. We are motivated by his identity and we are ministered to by his Holy Spirit to come to others uh, this week and enjoy the fact that they have no idea whatsoever why we're washing their dirty feet. But if they begin to ask, what makes her tick? What makes him do that? Then from the messenger, they may be brought to the message. Through the message, they may be brought to the Savior. Through the Savior, they will be brought to the Father. And the amazing thing is that before too long, you'll see them washing somebody else's dirty feet. What a great Savior He is. But He saves us to transform us, to be like Him. And tomorrow, if not already tonight, there will be a situation placed right before you where Jesus will test you because you've been reading John chapter 13. May he give us much grace to pass that test and to rejoice together when we meet again in his ways among us. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes, that through him we might become rich. And we pray that in our riches, we might also be willing to become poor for others in order that through our impoverishment in humble service, they may become rich. Hear us, bless us, and use us, we pray, for Jesus' sake.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.